0: Welcome to Sustain the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Why do I cease to sleep? quote Gauguin. Don't even I'm not an expert on French paintings. It doesn't make any sense. None of the people on this podcast are experts on French paintings. I think. you never know. Really excited about our guests today, but before we introduce them I want to make sure you know who the hosts are on this podcast because other voices may chime in. So I am, of course, Richard Litauer. Hello everyone. And also on the podcast, we have the inevitable Justin Dorfman. Justin, how you doing? I'm doing great, Richard. How are you? Doing good. Went birding this morning. Rusty Blackbird. Nice. And then we have the inexorable Ben Nichols. Ben Jam, how you doing? I don't know what inexorable means. That's okay. That's fine. <laughs> we'll leave that well, out. Brief- <laughs> <I'm good. laughs>
1: no, keep it in. <laughs>
0: Then we have the, I can't think of another N word, but we have an amazing guest who you just heard, Amanda Brock. Amanda is the CEO of Open UK. We have had her on the podcast before. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Open UK is a really cool organization that actually I'm going to leave her to describe because I don't have the elevator pitch down. So Amanda Brock, how are you doing first?
1: I'm doing really well. Thank you.
0: Excellent. Can you tell me again, what is Open UK?
1: Yeah, we're an industry organization about the business of open technology, and that's open source software, hardware, data. When I say the business of open technology, it always sounds like we're very corporate focused, but actually we're sort of the opposite. And we focus on everybody in the UK, everybody geographically based who works or wants to work around open technology. So we don't care who employs you, so long as you're in our space, we're interested in working with you. And we do a bunch of different stuff around community, legal and policy and learning, which I'm sure we'll talk more about.
0: So the UK is really interesting technologically wise, because not only is Open UK sort of work on policy, but there's also other areas. I'm thinking in particular of SSI, the Software Sustainability Institute, which is run by Neil Hong. Can you tell me the difference between Open UK and SSI and how that works? No. Okay. That's all right. I think. <laughs> I
1: I can't answer. No, I don't know the difference. I don't know enough about them. I was just talking about them recently to somebody at the BCS who is on their advisory board. I think they're really interesting. I suspect, without being able to comment much on them, that we are much more focused on policy and big picture in terms of um, technologies.
0: Interesting. When you say policy, does that mean you're advising governments? Are you a lobbyist? What sort of policy work are you doing?
1: So we don't cut this up in the UK the way that you do in the US. And we are about to announce, probably around the time this podcast comes out, the founding of an all-party parliamentary group. And that's the way that we educate politicians here. That APPG will be on open technology and it will be free to participate in. And Open UK will be what's called the secretariat, working with some politicians to lead it and bring topics into government for discussion. And then we do responses to legislation, advocacy, all sorts of different bits. But the laws and the ways, the whole policy piece is very, very different here from what you're used to in the US.
0: Interesting. What I'm used to is probably, well, I I feel like I always straddle the Atlantic because I also went to the University of Edinburgh. I lived in Britain for a while, but also the conversations that are really about around software.
1: We both know you live, In Scotland, you didn't live in Britain. Come on, admit it.
0: (laughs) That is actually very true. Thank you very much. I did not live in Britain. Yes, for all of you out there. Yes, separatism is the best, except when it's really not. But moving on, software sustainability as a topic, like how do we sustain open source, has actually been moved a lot by the Europeans more than the Americans. American government tends to be really, really slow at doing things. And also our politicians are, for lack of a better word, crap. So it's really interesting to see how it's been playing out over there on the other side of the pond. When I think a lot about European policy, I think about Open Forum Europe, like Aster's work. But of course, the UK is in this really awkward spot right now. Don't worry, we had Trump for a while. There's all sorts of like everyone kind of is going through an issue at the moment. But I've been wondering, has Open UK's mission changed since Brexit now that The UK is more of an independent body as a national group. And how has that influenced how we think about tech in Britain?
1: Interesting. I think it's only a difficult situation if you allow it to be right. So we just try to focus on the things that we can do and do well and not get dragged into the ups and downs of the political arena. Brexit is enormous. And it's enormous because it is one of the very few geopolitical shifts that you can draw a line On a timeline at an exact second as to when it happened. So it's a really definable geopolitical shift. And one of the things that I've become increasingly interested in, partly because of it, is how geopolitical shift, how politics impacts technology and vice versa, and where that's driving open source. And I'm sure that will really come out, particularly with Benjamin on the call today. Some of the issues that we're seeing at a government, a political level, and that the cascading effect that that's having across open source software in particular will be something I'm sure we're going to talk a lot more about. Open UK's remit, however, didn't change much because we are only just over three years old. And one of the reasons that I agreed to take on the role was that I saw a need, a gap that needed to be filled post Brexit. I've worked internationally since 2000 and wasn't really interested in an organization that was country focused initially until I saw that it was really needed for the UK. And I kind of like the way that we have built something that I consider forward-looking but totally different. So you talk about Astor and OFE who do a great job in Europe, but they're very much a policy organization. And it's only a bit of what we do. We have a big chunk in education and skills. And then also we bring together communities so that we have a reference point for that policy voice. And that just keeps growing and growing. So like last week we were at Coopaddle, the week before we were at DevOps London, DevOps Days London. And there's just so many great people here that we're getting to interact with.
0: It's interesting that you bring up education. That is something that I know you do. Also on the last podcast we had, you talked about your plans for a carbon neutral data center, which is another type of open work that Open UK is also interested in. Instead of going deeply into those, I know we covered those in depth in the last podcast. One of the things I wanted to talk about today besides the things that you mentioned now around policy and how does Open UK work. You have a book that's coming out and or came out by the time this podcast goes live on October 28th, 2022. Can you talk a bit about what this book is?
1: Well, it's mostly long, to be honest. And as the editor of a book that's 24 chapters long, I can say that it's a one-off experience for me. I really love writing and I hadn't realized just how hard it is to edit other people's work. So the book is Open Source Law Policy Practice, and it has, I think, 25 authors because some chapters are co-authored. And it flows through community, legal and commercial issues by splitting them into the sort of IP issues that we all know and love around open source, community building, that kind of stuff, looking at commercialization, looking at foundations, and really super interesting stuff that will be quite groundbreaking on the economics. And on the standards piece and the issues that we're seeing in the standards sector, Blind and Mirka Bohm have written that section. So I have to say my chapter is definitely not one of the best, but it is a really stupendous book. And bizarrely, these things are always super expensive, right? It's published by Oxford University Press. It's come out at £75 and I have a flyer that has a discount somehow taking it to 52 that I think I can share with the world. So it's a relatively inexpensive book to start with for that kind of text. But actually, the Veach Foundation sponsored open access, which I'm really pleased about. And we'll share that open access link. I think I'm the only person that makes any money out of it and I don't care about it. So please just help yourselves to it and use it as much as you possibly can across community projects. I'm more interested in making sure that that knowledge is there as a source of reference for people. Because I think as we get back into the policy conversation, the content of this book is something that will help guide people around some of the issues we really have to deal with. And I'm so sad. I spent hours on the index and it's nowhere near perfect for trying to find ways for people to have recognisable words to go and check legal points rather than having to go off and either work blindly or take legal advice every time they need something. So hopefully that will be a good first port in a storm.
0: Nice. I like, and I'm also glad they're going to have an open access version. OUP titles are really expensive. 75 quid is a lot. And as much as I would like to see that money go to you as the author, to be honest, not much of it will per book.
1: No, no, no. I'm just not worried about. Give the money. People, please just take it. Use it as much as you can. That nobody is interested from the, the author perspective and the editor perspective about making money out of it. It's not the point.
2: How does your publisher feel about that? <laughs>
1: I got them open access funding, so I'm hoping that they're going to be fine about it. It's restricted for commercial usage, and I suspect that it will get adopted quite heavily in universities. There isn't another text like it. So, you know, as we... Oh, that's good. Right. And it's kind of why we wrote it. So there's this community element where you want to create the resources, but also there was a first version of it with two other authors, which is about 10 years old now. And we all know how much open source has shifted in that last decade. Andrew Katz also brings, in, he was on the podcast with me before, brings in hardware and some of the other opens into it. But I think there's a real gap in technology education and universities around some of these topics. And I'm hoping it sort of gives a curriculum.
2: So it's like, in a way, Oxford press are just like, we want this to spread. We want this in our universities and just everything. That's how they get paid.
1: We had a really good sponsorship put in place from the Veech Foundation to enable the open access. They've paid for that to happen for us. So it means that for non-commercial usage, it's absolutely there to be taken.
2: Awesome.
0: Looking at the author's website, it actually is a pretty interesting selection. So there's Merkel Boom, there's Pamela Chestek, Richard Fontana, who we've also had in the podcast, McCoy Smith, who we've had in the podcast. And it's just a list, Karen Sandler. It's really good to see all of these voices who have been so instrumental in figuring out what we mean by open source policy. It's kind of a who's who of the OSI legal list, to be honest. Is it, which I'm is not fun. on the
1: legal list. I don't like licensing, so I'm not on the legal list. I have the most amazing panel at All Things Open to launch the book. And I think it's on the Monday, the 1st of November at 1245 local. And I have Pamela
0: Right after the sugar rush wears off.
1: Ah, Yeah, but yeah, wait, wait. wait. So I have Pamela Chestick. I have Karen Sandler, I have Jelaine Lovejoy, I have Nithya Ruff, I have Kate Stewart as my five panelists. I'm moderating and All Things Open are creating a space on the app where you can ask us anything. And then we will answer all questions for all comers. So I'm hoping it's going to be super exciting and you don't often see a list of people like that doing a panel.
0: Well, I have some immediate questions before that panel. So one of them is you have a chapter on sustainability and open source. This is probably written by Christian Perino, who is the Open UK's Chief Sustainability Officer. Can you talk a bit about what goes on in that chapter? Because it seems irrelevant to this podcast.
1: Yeah, so Luke's, the Sustainable Development Goals, some of the work we did towards COP26 last year, we're evolving that. We have an event in November on what is aligned to COP27, really on Open Technology for Sustainability, where we will be looking at societal value metrics. And it's very much a V1, but looking at the SDGs. So Christian picks up on all of that stuff. I don't know if you'll remember, but in our kids course, he also did a whole load of curriculum linking the SDGs into open technologies, open source software. And
0: SDGs? What does that stand
1: for? Sustainable Development Goals from the United Nations.
0: Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Sorry, we don't actually talk about sustainability environmentally as much as we could on yeah. this podcast. Normally, it's about sustainability of open source going forward. Oh,
1: that's a really good point, because when we talk about sustainability, we also are not just talking about the environmental. So that's hugely important. And of course, open source's values and open source's technology really sits well with that and reduces emissions through things like the containerization and stuff. But actually, the SDGs are really quite broad. And I find it fascinating how many of the goals that have been set by the UN there actually align with the values of open source. So things like creating things for all people, making them accessible for everybody, poverty not being a barrier to access technology, that sort of stuff is much broader than the environmental piece. And that's what the Sustainable Development Goals are all about. So I just love the way the two align. So if I can, I would quite
3: like to drag you back to this all-party political group and the meeting that is going to be happening on the 17th of October, which will probably have happened by the point this goes out. But I just wanted to talk a little bit about what are your kind of goals for that event and within kind of creating that group within government and how does that relate to what you see kind of happening in the EU and in the US generally?
1: So, we have the goals for the day on the 17th of October being to create a broader engagement across UK government. So, we have an event, for those who don't know, called Open Source Infrastructure, Curation and Security. And it's made up of a number of keynotes and six panels, the last of which is on funding, which Ben's on. So, it starts looking at what infrastructure is, looking at how the public sector is impacted by that today as a digitalized infrastructure, which is inevitably software defined, which is inevitably open source. So what does that mean? And how are governments are using and benefiting from open source software across the public sector in their national and critical national infrastructure? And it sort of weaves a story from there where we'll look at the Biden ordinance and security, the supply chain and software bill materials piece We'll move from that to talking about governance and good technical hygiene, the stuff that makes up curation. We then focus on security, technical issues, security policy issues before getting to that funding question. Now, it's a small event with what I hope will be a big reach. So we will be sharing videos afterwards. We have some senior figures from open source, from government participating in it. And we have an audience which, assuming people turn up, which we'll know by the time this comes out, will include a lot of different parts of UK and devolved nation governments. So for me, it's a stage one. And I'm going to say something that's slightly risky, which is that stage two is the state of OpenCom, which named to be confirmed, but I'm 99% that is certain that's it, on the 7th and 8th of February in London, which will be for a couple of thousand people. And it will take what we do in October, that's an Anglo-American conversation intentionally, to an international arena. And I think it will be an entirely unique event where our goal is to have the global conversation that needs to happen around joined up funding and a joined up approach to this use of open technology, open source software in infrastructure. To a broader audience, and we're trying to create an event which will be for the engineering community, which is partly why it will follow STEM, and for the more business-focused community, because all of us need to be aware of what is happening here, and there just doesn't seem to be enough information filtering across. So I presented last week at Qpuddle in Edinburgh, and the number of people who are worried about liability, about potential shift in liability back to the developers, which... I don't think any government was trying to do, but there is a lot of FUD around it. There's a lot of misunderstanding. And I think it's really important that the governments also see the level of engagement across our communities as strong and that we are a largely united, at least, body that wants to see them understand how they do a much better job of curating open source software and ensuring that when they're using it, they're giving back both in terms of contribution and economic contribution but also in that they manage it well and that they learn how to do the maintenance that's needed, how to build communities, how to contribute, that they stop funding software that thinks or says it's open source when all it is, is taking proprietary code, sticking on GitHub with an open source license, no documentation, no process around it, no plan for the future and not sort of subscribing to the values. But it really is something that I think matters and we want to try and bring folk together around.
3: I'm more than happy to jump on the uh, open by nature versus open by design kind of thing. So I'm really excited about this event. And it sounds like even though this is a smaller event that you already targeting like a broader kind of representation of organizations and institutions that, you know, effectively stakeholders in that space. Do you think that there is anything that's going to happen within government from kind of now until February? And what do you think of like the government's response in the US with the kind of executive order around expenditure on open source in government departments and some of the kind of guidance around like a software bill of materials and better understanding of what components are in software that's used in government. Are you thinking that that's going to be a line that government follows? Is that something that you're going to support or is it something that you're going to try and have more of a rounded conversation about?
1: I think we need to talk about it and I think we don't need to talk about most things. I met a director from the European Commission, Lorena Vois, something I'm terrible with names so I apologise, two weeks ago at a conference on security and they have just put in place the draft Cyber Act in Europe. And there is a slight issue in my mind with it because it talks about commercial open source and it tries to split open source and commercial open source and create different responsibilities. And I was really pleased that she was very open to the feedback I gave her around that and we'll be submitting it formally too. And it was very clear that what they're trying to do in Europe is ensure that the end user is responsible. Now, by that, Open source is distributed freely, it's distributed on an OSI approved license, it's distributed without liability, right? On the other end of the scale, the user will take that open source and use it in all sorts of different scenarios, which can include regulated space or high risk spaces. And that user needs to own that and that the laws need to reflect that. Now SBOMs are about transparency and clarity. And in my days at Canonical, we used to create equivalents all the time. All the commercial customers wanted things like that. So I think having that standardization is good. And I think it's needed. There is a point in the dependencies where we're just going to have to draw a line and we're not going to be able to put everything in there prehistorically. It's going to be to a certain point and we're just going to have to stop and say that's as good as you get. But I think you see a rise in the usage from the Biden ordinance. In the UK, the Open UK survey showed about 23%, something like that, 21%. In the US, it was over 70% of organizations that are using S-bombs now. And the legislation is meant to be pushing the end user to have it. Now, that's fine because that's their responsibility. When you want things from the open source community, you cannot simply expect those things to be done for free. You know, we give you the code. It doesn't mean that everything else that you could ever ask us to do, people are going to go off and do now, when I was being asked about security and are you going to have to become a security expert, I was sort of joking with a, a young friend saying, if I was your mom, I would tell you to go and do a course in security. We're all going to need to know that going forward and it'd be a brilliant thing for everyone to do. But I don't think the obligation can ever fall legally, fully on the open source community. It has to sit at the end user level. And if they want work done, it needs to be through curation and that needs to be paid for. And that's where the liability shifts when you contract to do work that you're paid for. And even then, and I'm gonna keep saying this, you should not be taking on liability for the open source code. You should be taking on liability for the work you're paid to do.
0: SBOMs bombs for listeners who aren't sure our software bills and materials. And it's an industry way of basically listing all the things that are in your software. This is of course, very, very difficult for open source packages because open source packages tend to use dependency trees, which go all the way down. Until you're just swimming in a pool covered with turtles. So one of my questions while listening to this conversation is you say you can't put work on open source maintainers without paying them, which is accurate. But also payment is only one possible way of basically remunerating people for their work. And some people may just not want to be involved at all. Do you know if there's been conversation about what happens if one part of the dependency stack just doesn't want to be included and doesn't want to bother with having an S-bomb or dealing with any governments or anything like that and refuses to do any work?
1: Well, I don't know that you're necessarily going to have to. That's the whole point for me. When I talk about money, money is a useful thing. And the more that I run Open UK, the more I appreciate that and the value of the money that different partners and sponsors give us because it allows me to do stuff. And I raise money to do specific projects and that facilitates it. Now, sometimes I do it myself and sometimes I go and get someone else to do it for us. And that's how I see this panning out. When the work needs done, I've tried to be clear. And sometimes my old lawyering skills come in and maybe I'm confusing a little bit. But the laws sit with the liability as far as I can see on the end user for the use case in which they use open source software. Changes to that need to be contracted for. And I don't think there is anything anywhere that I've seen that is pushing it back to the open source community. What we'll need to do is look at if people are willing to do the work and be contracted to do that, whether it's being a maintainer that they would be anyway, and that there is going to be recompense because their work is being used at a, an international infrastructure level, then we need to work out how that's going to happen. And that's a really big conversation that I do not know the answers to but we need to start having the conversation with people like Benjam. The other piece of it is that nobody should ever be forced to do something they don't want to do, in my view. There are things we have to do for the greater good, but coding, to me, is a freedom of speech, and it's not something that we should be regulating. So if someone doesn't want to participate, there needs to be a structuring that allows that high-risk usage, that infrastructure usage or critical infrastructure usage And I suspect we will see something new evolve, which I've been referring to as stewards. And I think we will end up with governments creating bodies. My personal view is they will be public-private enterprises or initiatives, and they will hold code that is sanitized or curated for usage in the public sector. And I think we'll see governments wanting that. And it's not an OSPO, it's a hybrid. And I think it's somewhere between a foundation and an OSPO, and I think that that is going to create a massive cadence. I think there's going to be a huge amount of traction. And then we've got to work out how the funding is done. Because one of the people coming to speak at our event in October is from the UN. He's a director at the UN and people like that need to be engaged in this conversation to understand how we're going to reap that money, bring it together. I don't want to see countries setting up sovereign funds on their own. I want to see them working out how they're going to throw money into the giantest of giantest pots.
0: If you figure that out, let me know, because that sounds impossible. I mean, we're already seeing governments (laughs) pushing this forward on their own, right? They even called it a sovereign fund in Germany. And the U.S. law that just came out, which is proposed, is super about federal America security, America freedom. I mean, I'm surprised it's not called the Freedom Act again, so,
1: But you've got to live with that, right? You have to accept. And we as an organization that's come out of Brexit in some ways have had to deal with all of this. And we talk about focusing locally to collaborate globally. We're about UK leadership and global collaboration. And I'd love to see every country looking at their open source folk in that way. And if you don't try, it's not going to happen, right? Now, we've engaged with the people in the Sovereign Fund in Germany, and I hope they'll participate. They can't do this event in October, but I hope they'll be part of the event in February. Because all comers are welcome. We all need to be part of this conversation. We will not all be happy with the solution. It never works like that. But if we can do the right thing enough, then we should be able to create something that is really groundbreaking here. And there's so much of the bedrock of the work already happening in different pieces I think probably, Richard, you see a lot of this too. I'm sure Justin and Ben also. But I get to see so much of what's going on across this space. And there are so many different pieces that drawn together could have a really strong impact in creating that conclusion, hard as it might be to get to.
0: I want to come back to your idea of like the weird corporate slash governmental OSPO union foundation thing. Do you think <laughs> not, that going? You go. No, no, I'm sorry. I just, it's cool. I like the idea. So I'm thinking about it. And I'm thinking, why don't I quit my job? Sorry, Ben. And just immediately go and start a company that copies open source code that's been provided as is into the commons and says, we'll provide the S-bombs through this code. And then just starts selling that to people as this is secure. Like what's stopping me from doing that? I think that's what's going to happen in the future for people who don't want to deal it. with this stuff.
1: Other companies are doing it already. Go on, go and make money. Lots of people are going to make money out of this. There's nothing to stop you. And there's nothing wrong with you doing that, making some money. You're going to part of the supply chain. And you were talking about not everybody wanting to do this work. If you're going to go and create S bombs for hire, good, go for it. It'll take pressure off other
2: people. The chain Guard started doing that. They started creating their own Docker images with like their own version of Nginx and Linux. So I think we're definitely going to see that trend continue. And honestly, I think it needs to be done because there's a lot of, software floating out there that just have tons of vulnerabilities and really no incentive to fix them.
1: And what I'm hoping is that I sort of know that we will see lots of companies doing this and I'm not criticizing and I'm genuinely saying, good luck to you. Go and make money out of it. That's great. We want people to be able to make money and sustain the open source that they're going to be contributing back to depending on the licensing when doing all sorts of stuff around and seeing it used is great. The other piece of it is that we still need to deal with the big picture. And what we don't want is for governments to get everything from companies, because if they do, they're going to end up back in a situation of vendor lock-in. And one of the things that I've become acutely aware of in the last year, because I've done a bit more of guidance and help to the public sector in the UK, is that you see commissioning or procurement of what is going to be open source done. In a way that doesn't actually create this good open source, which I've already mentioned, but it also doesn't achieve the goals. And although I don't like the fact the goals are always economic and they're always avoiding lock in and creating code that will save money because it's reusable and recycled. Now, if you're effectively paying for proprietary code to be dumped with an open source license on GitHub, you are not going to achieve that. And the piece, Justin, that you are just talking about there with Chain Guard, there's a risk that if governments were all to start using that, that they would also end up locked into these pseudo open source providers or open core companies or whatever it is. And we don't want that to happen either, which is why I'm really pushing this concept of stewardship, where you would see public sector bringing the sort of best of what they can do and the money that they have and the resources that they have with the private sector to create something that would be reusable as that sort of sanitized version across the public sectors in their country. Because every country is going to have a pick list of what they want to use. There are going to be things that they want and they don't want. Everybody's got nuances, but there will be some sort of vanilla base that I think everybody will be able to subscribe to or vanilla options that everybody can subscribe to and fund. And you mentioned the commons. I've been banging on about this all year, but I really believe that we have to start owning that open source software is a digital public good. We really need to be pushing that agenda, I think.
2: You brought up a great point, and I never even thought about it. And that's why I love doing this podcast is the vendor lock-in. Right now, it's free, it's open, and this and that. And then as investors get more, hey, let's start making some profits here, then you can start turning into the, okay, if you want this image, you have to start subscribing to this plan and... I see what you're going there. Yeah, it might seem like it's very virtuous right now, but then can turn into something that is just kind of against open source ethos locking people in with the vendor and but at the same time it's a difficult problem because security is very difficult to keep up with, you know, with the amount of CVEs that are being published each day. You need a company or some type of entity with lots of resources that can keep up with the amount of vulnerabilities that are being produced with open source. So it's a difficult issue, but it's also a really good issue because that means open source is growing. And I don't know, I like to look at it with optimism and think that with these companies coming up like ChainGuard and all these other ones it's actually going to help open source because the more money they make, the more money they can contribute back to the community. Yeah. No,
0: there's no way, Justin. I'm sorry, I have to jump in. That's Reaganomics in a nutshell. So that's feeding a squirrel and hoping it bobbins up enough food for the next squirrel down the road. Like, it's just not,
2: that's not how hey, things works. squirrels have feelings, okay? Stop I, know, I
0: know, I know. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That was a
2: weird analogy. I'm just, no, not, that's why I like you pushing back, but I, that's just kind of how I see it happening. Yeah, but
0: that's the Tidelift model where like they have investors who make a ton Mm. of money off of open source and they're giving some of that back to maintainers, which is
1: great. So it's about risk. All of this is about risk. Risk of security, risk of open source not being done well, lack of documentation, lack of contributors, not knowing where you're going to be getting your maintenance from. And that's what I'm talking about. It's not doing open source in a good way. And I suspect what we will see And it might even go as far as regulation, is that the government end, so this is not putting the burden on you if you don't want to do it as a developer, but the government end is going to require certain things to be met. I mean, I've been having conversations about how assessments are done, where funding go in the UK on software. And it shouldn't be going to organisations that are creating code, pseudo open, where it's developed closed. I'm going to bang on about this again. It's stuck on GitHub with an open source license, but nobody's ever going to use it because it's really proprietary code. So I think we will see much more work about what makes open source, open source and good open source. I think we'll see curation as a term for that. I think we'll see stewardship for these or stewards for these organizations. But I know Ben wants to speak.
3: I was just going to say plus one effectively. I think there will be... A lot of people starting companies that are trying to offer effectively a liability shift on behalf of commercial entities onto their own effectively insurance kind of provider. Yeah. The thing that worries me is whether there are incentives to shift towards a less open form of support. So for instance, you know, I could create a company that collects CVs and then I can sell proprietary fixes to my own versions of those open projects, which is actively working against open source as a kind of commons despite the fact that I could very easily wrap that company and the philosophy of open source. But yeah, I think that's the right point, right? It's just trying to make sure that we're aware of some of those issues and that more money in open source goes to those people who are open to working on projects as part of their professional kind of capacity. And that we don't end up with the opposite reaction which is a bit more of a contraction in open source as a practice of creating software
0: and i know i work for i work for open collective but like i like the fact that we have a list of projects who are willing to take money and i wish there was more of that in this space to say hey yeah you want us to make an s-bomb sure pay us and we'll make it just let us know how to do it i think it's going to pop up in the next few years is like how to Situate your open source projects in a way that makes it easier for companies to work with you. And this is also one of the cool things about, say, like your book, Amanda. It's already setting out groundwork for how to think about open source and law together, which is great. We always need more educational materials there.
1: One thing that Ben mentioned was insurance. And I talked about risk, but I didn't actually mention insurance. And it's something that about a decade ago, I came up with a mad scheme that I've tried to push forward a couple of times. And I still have in my head my mad insurance scheme. And it's something that I'm going to try and get some people to revisit. I can't do it before this conference. We've got too much going on. But next spring, I'm definitely going to start talking about insurance and how we can create insurance for open source at scale, as opposed to going off and trying to buy it from brokers. And it's something that, again, in my days at Canonical, sort of 13 years ago, 14 years ago, but I was looking at buying insurance in a way that very few people were because the big companies self-insure. And in the, the US at the time, at least, you couldn't buy insurance around open source. It was too unknown. And I think that there's going to be a big space there where we can also manage some of this risk. And some of the government money can go into that too and help protect the bigger picture.
0: Like you said, at scale it reminds me of Stephen Wally, who always talks about software engineering being coding at scale. It's very easy to make a project that works on one computer when you try to work on thousands. That's when you run into different issues. I'm guessing his chapter in the book was foundations and NGOs. I'm not sure if he wrote a different one. I'm
1: afraid you've lost. Oh. Uh, that's Karen Karen Sandler's foundations. You should probably work that out. He's working on community and the, the community building chapter and cool. a bit of history of open source too.
0: Amanda, we probably should start wrapping up. This has been a wonderful conversation. Really excited about your book coming out. Excited for the panel at ATO. That'll be around November 1st. They're having it right over Halloween. Kind of a weird date to have a conference, but that's cool. Everyone can show up in cool costumes. So that'll be fun. Before we head on to Spotlight... Obviously, people can buy this book at Oxford University Press, and we will have our link in the show notes for that. But Amanda, where else can people follow you and Open UK on the interwebs?
1: You'll find us at openuk.uk. You'll see a lot of information on the website, different projects that we're working on, and details of all our events. And then you can follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter, OpenUK underscore UK and at Amanda Brock UK.
0: Excellent. When you get a Scotland website up, let me know, openuk.scotland. Sorry, just having fun. I'm obviously not Scottish anyway. I'm Vermont. Amanda, thank you so much. This has been excellent, but don't leave yet. Yes, this is the time of the show where we focus on spotlight. What is spotlight? It's a section where we dedicate love towards other projects, people, books, what have you, that we feel have really helped us out in our lives and or need some light. Shed on the Justin Dorfman, my traditional first call. What is your spotlight today?
2: My spotlight today is opensauced.pizza, which is founded by Brian Douglas of GitHub DevRel fame. He has a really great YouTube channel where you can just click on his opensauced.pizza. It's like in the top right corner. Very great guest, high quality production, like just Really good stuff, and I'm really just loving what he's doing. Excellent.
0: Thank you so much. Ben Nichols? Mine is a revisit to
3: a very popular program that I've mentioned before, which is Solarium. And the reason why I wanted to mention them is that they have, after 20 years of building a free open source planetarium and Astro kind of platform, released version 1.0 which is something to be celebrated. I love the idea of not getting to 1.0 until 20 years after you started. And I love the idea of a project like that going through many maintainers and having such a kind of solid foundation that they're kind of able to have that kind of history. So yeah, I just want to basically to say congratulations to everyone
0: that's working on Solarium and keep up the good work. It's amazing. That is awesome. 20 years is, of course, a very short time interstellar levels. So. That is great that they did it True so that. quickly. My spotlight today, there's so many things I could talk about, but obviously I'm going to talk about birds and the UK because why not? Collins bird guide is just a really excellent bird guide. If you're ever in Britain or even anywhere in Europe, it is the best guide for anglophones. So go look it up. It's really heavy, which is weird for a field guide because you don't want to carry a brick with you, but there's a great app that also has some really great sounds on it. that can help you out it's the app that i use when i'm in britain and i want to know what life looks like and how do i identify that life if it has wings so go check it out and is like warm blooded not an insect i don't know what the insect guide is in the uk i'm going to stop talking collins bird guide is great thank you so much manda what is your spotlight
1: so you've confused me so cormorants are not warm blooded but they're birds in the uk so they
0: are warm blooded yeah they spend a lot of their time but
1: no ba- they have to do is that not because yeah. of
0: No, they actually have to oil out their feathers because they don't have the protective oils that other birds have. And so they're drying them out all the time. They don't have that because it makes it easier for them to swim. Very good question.
1: So clearly I'm not writing a book about birds. The spotlight I would make today is on one of the people that we work a bit with at Open UK, Eddie Joad, who is a GitHub all-star, but who has just won a prize from them for being the best educator. And he is tireless. He does so much open source education. Absolutely amazing. Every now and then I end up on one of his Twitter, his live Twitter things. And we just see so many people taking their first steps into open source. So big shout out from me for Eddie.
2: He has really good Twitter spaces. If anyone's into open source education and just even non-code contributions, like he's just really all over the place. And congratulations to Eddie.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Eddie. Thank you all for coming on the podcast. This was great. If you have any thoughts about OpenUK, Amanda Brock, or sustaining open source software in the future, please do let us know. Of course, you can find Amanda on Twitter and LinkedIn, and we'll have that in the show notes. Same for open UK. You can find us also on those places. So you can go to OSS on Twitter. You can email us at podcast at You can just go to sustainos.org. You can go to our discourse on discourse.org. I and mean, if you like this podcast, you can always rate us on apple spotify and what have you always love getting some love there if you would like to be on the podcast or you know someone who should be on please let us know and also really do check out amanda's book we'll link it when it comes out so very excited to be able to do that you could also go to the OUP's website and order it there should be out october 28th this year thank you all so much and that's it thanks y'all